Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. We are going to continue with our introduction to the Paramatma Sandarbha, a bird's eye view of the Paramatma Sandarbha, as presented by the uh, commentator, uh, Sachin Das Babaji. Uh, just to quickly go over what we discussed in the up to this point, this is just an overview of what's going to be presented in the whole Sandarbha. The Sandarbha consists of 110 Anuchetas. And the first 18 Anuchetas, Jiva Goswami will call it, cover the ontology of Paramatma. What are Paramatma's essential nature and characteristics, functions? And specifically in deal with the three manifestations of Paramatma's relating to the material world both metacosmic, uh, Karnadakshai Vishnu, macrocosmic, Garbodakshai Vishnu, and microcosmic, Kashirodakshai Vishnu. So Sankarshan, Pradyumna, Aniruddha, uh, respectively, who along with Vasudev make up the Chaturvyuha. Jiva Goswami proceeds to the uh, Ontology of the Jiva. What is the nature of the Jiva? In Anarchate is 19 through 47. And coming to the, to the most significant understanding that's necessary for the practice of bhakti. Achinta, beta, beta, tattva. He will proceed in Anarchate is 48 through 55 with the ontology of Maya. What exactly is the Lord's external potency and how does it influence the marginal potency? Um, and the nature of Maya, which is the Bahiranga Shakti. You have your Antaranga Shakti, the Lord's internal potency or Swarup Shakti. You have the Tatasta Shakti, the Jiva, uh, the Lord's uh, marginal potency, and then you have Maya, Bahiranga Shakti. Uh, Maya, as we discussed, uh, comes in two basic divisions, Jiva Maya and Guna Maya, and those will be discussed in detail. He then goes on uh, with a, a little subset of the ontology of Maya, uh, which is devoted to exactly the material cosmos, the external material cosmos. Um, so the nature of Paramatma in relationship to the cosmos is explained uh, in Anarchages 56 through 81. And he begins by vehemently uh, refuting the theory of ra the radical non-dualists, which is vivartavad, uh, that the material universe is simply an illusory appear appearance. So vivartavad is that which has sprung out of um, the advaitins who follow Sankaracharya. So it's a misconception. It's a misunderstanding. Their understanding is 
the only reality in their estimation is Brahman. And the material energy is really just an illusion. But Jiva Goswami presents the true Vedic viewpoint, uh, which is Parinamavad. That the cosmos is a modification, Parinama, of just one of the potencies of Paramatma called Bahiranga. So it's a modification of an energy. That energy is continually being modified uh, by the influence of the modes of material nature. Not continually. It's continually in a cycle. It also has a period where it's not, the material energy is not manifest at all. Rather, Paramatma takes it back into himself and has a bit of a rest from the material creation. So now we're up to where we left off in the last discourse, and we'll get into a little bit more of the detail here. so Bhagavan has real potencies that are inherent to himself. And uh, as we just mentioned, in three different categories. His internal potency, himself, his Swarup Shakti, Antaranga, his intermediary, Tatasta, and his ex, ex, extrinsic potency, Bahiranga. And here we're talking about this philosophy of Parinamavad, which is so crucial to our understanding of the Lord and his relationship with his various potencies, his energies. And the example is given of a philosopher's stone, Shintamani. Now, Shintamani, this very special stone, which I wish I had one of, turns iron into gold just by its touch. So if we could have such a stone, it would be very nice. Um, Of course, there's the story of Sanatan Goswami, and I believe he had such a stone in his possession. And um, someone found out that he had it, and he approached him and said, I've heard you have this special stone that can turn iron into gold, this Chintamani stone. Um, Could I have it or could I at least borrow it for a while? (laughs) And Sanatan Goswami said, oh yes, it's in the rubbish pile over there. And this made the the inquirer uh, question question, why is it in the garbage? He said, well, what value is it really? And uh, Sanatan Goswami, he said, well, he must have something that's much more valuable if he can treat something that can turn iron to gold as a piece of garbage. And uh, at that time, uh, he asked Sanatan, well, what, what do you have? So what's, what's so enriching to your life that you wouldn't even think of using this, that you simply have discarded it. And uh, Sanatan Goswami, I I don't know if he said or not, but it's implied that he said, well, if you uh, 
if you want to know what's really valuable, you're going to have to lose interest in my Chintamani stone. So if you if you're willing to give up that desire you came to see me with of acquiring my Chintamani stone, if you're able to leave that that aside, then I'll tell you what's truly uh, of value. And then we know that he was able to instruct him in, uh, in devotional service. So this example is used here by Srila Jiva Goswami um, to show that this external potency can be modified without Paramatma, who's the source of that potency, being affected in any way. Now the arguments go on a little bit, and this is going to be really um, brought out in the Paramatma Sandarbha, so that we truly and deeply understand the tattva that's involved here. Um, so the tattva, of course, is Paramatma is immutable. That means it doesn't change. The Supreme Lord does not change in any way by manifesting the material universe. Well, one would say, well, the material universe is one of the potencies of Paramatma. So we have no experience. How, how can this be factual if the Paramatma manifests the material universe out of his very nature, out of one of his energies, then how can you say that he hasn't changed? And Jiva Goswami um, develops the, the thorough answer in this Paramatma Sandarbha. Um, so Paramatma remains unchanged while impelling his Maya Shakti to manifest the entire cosmos. Now, our experience is if you have an ingredient and you produce something from that ingredient, the ingredient has been modified. Now, that's our experience. If a potter makes a pot or a plate, the clay no longer is just a block of clay. It's now become something else. So how can God, how, how can the Supreme manifest everything that we experience and not himself because, it's a, because he has no other ingredient except himself to produce the cosmos with? If there was another ingredient beside himself, then, then what's... what's how can we attribute the, the nomenclature God? God can have nothing outside of himself. He has to be the, the perfect absolute whole, the complete personality, and the complete source of all energies. All those energies are coming from him, including the material energy. So that's the question that's posed. And, of course, we know how the Vivartavad deals with it, well, the material creation is just an illusion. Ultimately, it's everything is Brahman, and if you're seeing the illusion, you just need to wake up. But our Vedantic philosophy is not that, is it? 
Our Vedantic philosophy is that the material energy is a true and factual potency of the supreme absolute truth. It actually, it's, it has form. It can take material form. It can produce material form. It is a potency. Everything that we experience is actually an extension of the energies of the supreme. It's not just an illusion that will one day just dissipate and we'll find ourselves in Vaikuntha. Well, what's Vaikuntha? Is Vaikuntha just nothing? Or does it also have shape, form, qualities, pastimes? All those things also exist there. So, how do we reconcile this? How do we philosophically reconcile this with this uh, Parinam Vod? Parinamavad. So, how do we how do we account for the immutability of Paramatma in this scheme of cosmic manifestation? So, Paramatma is posed as both the interest, instrumental and the constituent cause in the material universe. It's both the potency by which the universe is manifest and the energy from which the universe is manifest. So how does this happen without negating uh, negating this, the supreme immutability of Paramatma, unchanging, the unchanging nature of God? How, do, how can we say that God doesn't change if the material energy manifests from his, himself. And Jiva Goswami solves this riddle uh, by pointing out that the Maya Shakti, the Bahiranga Shakti, actually is not part of Paramatma or Bhagavan's essential nature. It's extrinsic to him. No, not like that. No, it's not part of his intrinsic nature. It's part of his potencies, but not his intrinsic, external to him. Maya is external, as evidenced by the um, revelation of Srila Vyasudeva. At the same time, Maya is not different from him because it's one of his potencies. So the solution is what Jiva postulates. And that is the theory of Achinta Beta Beta Tattva. The transrational, it's above our rationale. It's above our, the logic of, of conventional material wisdom, is it not? The transrational coexistence of distinction within the indivisible non-dual whole. What is the nature of this philosophy? It's a chinta. It's inconceivable from a materialistic viewpoint. Um, it does 
defy conventional logic. So using the Bhagavat Purana, as Jiva Goswami unfolds this argument, which is, um, what do we say here? 56 to 81. So it's over 20 Anuchetas. He's going to develop and and present this. That's how important it is to our tattva, to our understanding uh-huh. of a chinta beta beta tattva. It really has to be unpacked and it has to be fully assimilated beyond any reasonable doubt. Otherwise, the possibility of of uh, we have to have a firm foundation for our spiritual progress. So uh, the possibility of misconceptions uh, will loom uh, in our devotional, uh, in our spiritual practice, unless we fully comprehend this important aspect of the Gaudiya Vaishnav Sampradaya of their tattva. Then he goes on in Anuchetis 82 to 80, I'm sorry, to 104, uh, with another subtopic of the uh, ontology of Maya. I mean, you'd think there's so much dedicated to the Lord's external energy that maybe Paramatma Sandarbha seems inappropriate. Maybe it should be the Maya Sandarbha. But the fact is, Maya is simply an energy of Paramatma. And how can you really progress to another location if you don't know where you are to begin with? So, Maya's relation with the Jiva and Paramatma. How does the external energy of Paramatma, extrinsic energy, uh, influence the Jiva and be controlled by the Paramatma. And central to this discussion is the Jiva's bondage and release from Maya. So he begins this discussion, this section of Anuchetas or sections of his uh, Paramatma Sandarbha by referring to the discussion between Maitreya and Vidura and Vidura's questions there as, how, as to how Vidura wanted to know how can the Lord's extrinsic energy Maya overpower the jiva, which is part of his marginal potency. One's conscious and one's unconscious. So it seems Vidura was unbewildered. How can matter overcome the jiva? Could you explain this to me? So this takes up another 20 plus Anuchetas, this discussion, it's that important to our understanding of the Tattva. 
So he begins by referring to Vidura's question. Jiva Goswami does. And of course the sage replied it was by the transrational power of Maya. Oh, it's above rash. It's above what you consider, uh, you know, understandable. Um, achieve, a jiva becomes infatuated by the creation of Maya. How is that possible? Because what does that creation consisted of in comparison to the jiva who's conscious? Another important thing that will be brought out in the Sandarva, this Paramatma Sandarva, is the nature of the jiva and all the jiva's qualities in its pure state. So it's not that the jiva does not have potencies. It's not that the only characteristic of the jiva is simply consciousness. There's a whole list of qualities that the jiva has. Krishna touched upon them in Bhagavad Gita. So jiva will, jiva Goswami will elaborate on that. But first, in the context of answering this question put forward by Vidura to Maitreya and used as the basis for this discussion of how can the jiva be overcome by maya, uh, uh, Jiva discusses the intent behind the creative act itself. Why is there a creation? Um, and he first raises an objection to Bhagavan's being the agent of creation. Why does, why would the Lord even create this? material energy that simply bewilders his marginal potency, the jivas. And he offers a very unique, insightful reply by which he lays the ground for the bhakti and preeti sandarvas. So the discussion is quite deep here why would the Lord, and this comes up a lot in preaching, doesn't it? Why did the Lord put us here? Why are we suffering here? Why is there even a material creation? I mean, it's a valid point to make. If God is all loving, why is there material energy? Well, it's part of his, it's part of his energies. It's it's it it's a naughty. It didn't just come into being. Well, why doesn't the Lord just wrap it up? Well, he doesn't because it's part of his nature as Paramatma to manifest and then draw in the cosmos. But Jiva, as I said, he gives a unique answer to this the bhakti from the bhakti perspective. And his response is that the Lord, he's self-satisfied in himself. So there's no need on his part 
to manifest the creation. But the creation's always been there. And here we get into really understanding the nature of a naughty. It's, it's, it, it's never a time that there wasn't, as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor everything that you're seeing here. It's eternal. Um, so what Jiva brings out is the reason for the re-manifestation of the material universe again and again. It's simply out of love for his devotees. Not every devotee, not every practicing sadhika completes the course of his devotional growth during a creation cycle. There's some left behinds in the devotee community also. So in order to give them again the opportunity to, when he draws in all of the various cosmos into his very being, he again manifests the material cosmos simply to give them again the opportunity to engage and perfect themselves in devotional practice. As far as those that have not turned their consciousness towards him, he's indifferent. He's indifferent to them. But they're not indifferent to... I'm sorry, his devotees are not indifferent to them. Which brings another subject up, which Jiva is going to deal with deeply in the Paramatma Sandarbha. He brings forth the cosmos out of love for devotees who could not attain completion in the previous creation cycle so they can complete the course of their devotion. Then Jiva addresses another very important question. Why doesn't the Lord remove the suffering of humanity? Why does it exist? And he does this, Jiva does, by examining the psychology of compassion. So this will be exciting to understand what is the psychology of real compassion. Uh, and what comes out in this opening uh, introduction is Imagine this. We can imagine this. A person can feel empathy. Empathy. You can empathize with. You can take on the burden of somebody else. At least mentally. You can understand what they're going through. And be, you can be moved by their suffering. Uh, and moved to do whatever's within your power to redress their suffering uh, only if the heart is in direct contact with the other person's pain. So in order to show compassion, one has to have, have some true knowledge of the pain that the other person is experiencing. 
So Bhagavan has no contact with the material energy. So he does not go under, he does not undergo any of the pain that the jivas undergo in relationship with the external energy. So he has no experience of what we would normally define as compassion. Material misery doesn't influence him. Just as darkness does not affect the sun. But he's conscious of such suffering, but not on an immediate feeling level. That would be an impediment to his play of divine Leela. The nature of Krishna would be so overwhelmed. How could he engage in his divine Leela if he was aware consciously and knew the nature of the suffering of the jiva? But his omniscience is not barred by this fact that he is devoid of experiencing material misery. So how to reconcile that? Well, the Lord's direct, he is involved with his devotees. He's directly involved with his devotees. And, and he's involved with them, why? Because they've turned their consciousness towards him. Towards him. Uh, and of course the pure unalloyed unalloyed means no alloy the pure unalloyed devotees have entirely turned their consciousness consciousness to the supreme lord there's nothing else they have no desires in relationship with the material world and they only have desires in relationship to that loving relationship they have with krishna So, what Jiva will bring out here, and this is just a, re, a brief synopsis because it really will require some deep thought to understand fully, is it says Bhagavan grants his intrinsic potency. That would be his Swarup Shakti. He grants that potency of Bhakti to such devotees who have completely turned their consciousness towards him. Their hearts are directly moved by the suffering of those in contact with the material energy, those devotees. They've had experience. So they are truly empathetic. They drew, do have compassion and they extend. See, Bhagavan just deals with those devotees. And he deals with them in what? In divine love. Through what agency? Through the agency of his Leela. He manifests himself in accordance with their love for him. Some of them love him in this way, so he appears like a child in their arms. Some of them love him that way, 
he appears as Lord Rama, uh, the topmost king that's available in human society. So we, we have some insight through our tradition of how the Lord reciprocates with the love of his devotees in Leela. But what about the jivas that have not turned their consciousness? What's their hope? Well, their hope is turning their consciousness towards the Supreme. But the Lord doesn't, doesn't extend any compassion to them directly, as he does extend compassion directly to those devotees who have even partially or even have an inkling of a desire to love him. But he does extend his bhakti potency to those devotees as they advance and as they become completely unalloyed in their devotion. He does provide them with the opportunity to show the compassion of bhakti to suffering humanity. So Jiva's going to, through the Bhagavad Purana as the main source of praman or evidence, he's going to bring this all out in this particular Sandarbha. Now, when the Jivas who have not turned their consciousness towards Bhagavan are at least in some relationship towards his devotees, then what is the nature of the Lord's compassion? How deep does his compassion really go when it is played out? We can see that the Lord is so compassionate that he doesn't discriminate at that time between who's the devotee and who's the demon. We have examples. Haranyakasi Poo. He was, I mean, he terrorized Prahlad Maharaj, didn't he? I mean, terrorized him. And how did the Lord deal with him? Well, of course, from the Leela viewpoint, he, he devastated him. But two births later, Haranyakasipu attained liberation. And of course, we have the topmost example in Krishna Leela, Raj Leela, of Putna. Well, I mean, come on, trying to kill God? But she was dressed like a devotee, and the devotees... The devotees accepted her into their home. Mother Yasoda invited her in. Well, what kind of an invitation is that to be invited into the home of a devotee for a demon? And still, what the Lord, the Lord treated her in, in a very profound way and granted her um, the same position as any of his other nursemaids. A little different, but. Still, she was she was ultimately liberated from the suffering of material existence. She went through a little tribulation there, though. Uh, so only superficially, it's important, and this will be brought out. Only superficially, it may appear that he favors only the devas or the devotees and not those who stand in opposition to them, the Asuras. 
But Bhagavan is not biased, though appearing to be so, to the ignorant. Srila Jiva Goswami will wrap up this particular Sandarbha with a determination of the truce, the subject of the Bhagavat Purana. And uh, Jiva Goswami ending up, this is in Anachetas 105 to 110. This particular Sandarbha has 110 Anuchetas, each one very, very long and detailed. Uh, I started to prepare notes for the first Anucheta. It's, it's, it has a lot of spiritual world words in it. So just go there. Uh, you'll love just hearing it because hearing just hearing it will enlighten us. Uh, so Jiva closes by showing what is the actual subject of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And um, in order to do that, of course, he uses uh, an analysis which is common to all Vedic schools of thought uh, called Sadlinga. Sadlinga means the six logical components of a uh, text and he uses that analysis to show that the Bhagavatam opening opens and closes with the subject, the main subject, which is consistent to Vedic texts. Uh, and Jiva shows that the Bhagavatam, the Bhagavat Purana, intends to show that Bhagavan, not Brahman, or Paramatma is the highest manifestation of the truth, the tattva. Uh, Jiva will point out in these Anachetas that the conclusion that Bhagavan is the basis of Brahman and Paramatma concurs with other scriptures, such as the Bhagavad Gita. And he, in doing that, establishing what is the real, what's the real subject of the Bhagavat Purana, um, he's going to lay the groundwork for the next Sandarbha, which is the Krishna Sandarbha. An investigation into the identity of Bhagavan. So we went through the Bhagavata Purana where we learned about Bhagavan's various energies and now we're learning about his expansion Paramatma and then he's going to say, well, what's really the nature of Krishna? What is his nature? Um, that's in the next Sandarbha. We have a, a little time here with the Paramatma Sandarbha to spend to get there. And of course, the author needs to release the book I'm trying to find out when. I've written various people who are involved in the project. I'm getting one of those uh, con uh, hidden meanings. <laughs> but soon, I believe. So on the in this on the Sadlinga Jiva Goswami here at the end, he uh, 
he concentrates on the first, the beginning and closing comments. Of course, the opening comment of Srimad Bhagavatam, the first verse of Srimad Bhagavatam, um, is equivalent to what's contained in the first five verses of the Brahma Sutra or the Vedanta Sutra. Brahma Sutra, Vedanta Sutra, same book. Uh, which points to Gayatri and the ten primary topics of Srimad Bhagavatam. And then he goes to the closing statement of the entire Bhagavat Purana, in the twelfth canto, which gives us a more specific, in the beginning, in the opening statement, what do we have? We have the statement, Satyam Param, Dimahi. Let us make, meditate on Satyam Param Dimahi. That supreme truth. Uh, and in the close, we have the more specific address of that same subject matter, Swayam Bhagavan Sri Krishna. So Jiva concludes his treatise, treatise by stating that the explanation of the famous Vedanta verse of the Bhagavat Purana Vedanti tat tatva vidas tatva myaj janamadvayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti sabjate that began in the tatva sandarbha in the middle of the tatva sandarbha uh, has now been completed. So there's some additional concluding remarks here. I think I'll save these for the next discussion and then we'll go right into the first Anucheta after the Mangalacharana, of course. Are there any questions on what we discussed this evening? I'll stop there for this evening. Thank you so much for your association.